Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where from beginning to end, it is just Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. Good morning. Let's clap that out for Jesus, huh? Welcome, welcome. It is a uh, communion Sunday. We are in the book of Acts. I'm in Acts chapter 10. Um, and we are uh, sort of going through the book of Acts. We're going to open the word together. Um, at some point, someone will turn our house lights up just a little bit so you can see your Bible if you brought one. If you don't have a Bible, there's a one-year Bible and a study Bible out on the uh, welcome table. Make sure you grab one and uh, bring it as you come and join us. Uh, let's see. So I, I called this, um, we're, we're moving into Acts 10, and I called this uh, passage or this sort of idea that we're going to unpack this morning, the four steps to a relationship with Jesus. It's the house of Cornelius. We're getting ready to launch into uh, sort of reading. We're going to pick up in verse 23, and we're going to read all the way to verse uh, 48. But one of the things that sort of emerges here, and it's very difficult because I don't believe in biblical formulas, Okay. So if anyone gives you a formula, this plus this, do this and this, and you'll always get this. No, 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 no. It doesn't work. But there are biblical patterns, okay? So we're going to look today at a biblical pattern, and we're going to use this text, but then we're actually going to zoom out just a little bit, and we're going to go, okay, throughout the book of Acts, throughout even the um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and throughout the epistles, what are the things that God seems to call each of his people through? Um, and I can see four, maybe five. I might even add a fifth one at the end, but this is called the four steps um, to a relationship uh, with Jesus. So as I unpack this, or as we think about this, um, I gave my life to Jesus. I prayed uh, the sinner's prayer. Anybody ever heard of that? Come on. Okay. So I prayed that probably as a four-year-old. And I walked powerfully with God throughout my young years. Then I got lost for about seven years, 19 to 26 or 27. The Lord graciously rescued me from a really dark place. And I've been on a, on a path and a journey with Jesus since. So here's the question. When did Michael Mattis get saved? Hmm. Hmm. That's what we're going to unpack today for you also. And perhaps you're here as a seeker. You're here going, is God real? Is Jesus real? I just want to welcome you. This is a safe place to question. And uh, we are going to look and ask and see um, in this text. The, the other thing that I want to uh, tee this up with, I think, this morning is uh, we were, Abby and I um, had the privilege of going up to the mountains this last week for a few days with our kids. And uh, we were, I was up near Blowing Rock in Boone. And there was this sign um, that said, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. And we kept passing this sign. It was on like 321 or I don't know, 220, I don't remember, 421, I don't remember what road it was on. We kept passing, we passed it two or three times. Kept, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. And I had this like, mm, yes, but when you take someone who is lost in their sin, Someone who is lost in their own greed or their own climbing the corporate ladder. And not that that's wrong, but take someone who is lost in even adultery or even a secret sin or lost in their own pride or their own selfish ambition. Or you, you fill in the blank, lost in prostitution or an extramarital affair. I mean, it can be anything. But when you take someone who is in something that is dire and terrible and difficult and they're facing things and you put a pat answer on it, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. What do you think most of them are going to say? Uh, however, and I was like, man, I wish I could like pay to take the sign down and then pay to put it back up. I started thinking, what would I have put up there? Like if we were paying to put something up there, and I don't even know how sign. And one of the things that I'm committed to as a pastor is to help us into the fullness of truth. So is Jesus the answer to all your problems? Theologically, yes. But the journey of faith is a tumultuous, difficult, challenging one. 
And the journey of, of being saved, um, having been saved, being saved, continuing to be saved, is a difficult and challenging journey. So when you take someone who is deeply entrenched in whatever sin or, or difficulty that they're in, and if you could actually begin to say, as you begin to exchange your broken life for the life of Christ in you and through you, and as you begin to experience the saving presence of God in your life, and as he begins to transform your heart and your character and, and the things inside of you, and as you renew your mind in the gospel, and as you begin to think differently, and as you begin to experience relationship with this holy God, and more and more you're exchanging more of your brokenness and your sin for the holiness and righteousness of King Jesus, and as you're beginning to get healthy in your human relationships, breaking free of things like codependency or shame or addiction or whatever it is, as you're in this journey, all of the sudden, the wholeness and the life of Christ is welling up inside of you, and suddenly Jesus is the answer to all your but when you slap a pat answer on it on a sign like that, I'm like, is anyone going to come to Jesus because of that sign? I don't know. I don't know. Does God use it? Absolutely. He, anytime the name of Jesus is lifted up, he uses it. But so I, I, wanted, I want to wrestle with this this morning. What then is the normal Christian life? What does it mean to be a believer? And when actually do we become believers? What does being saved even mean? What does the new birth mean? Um, and we're about to read about it here in Acts 10. But I want us to wrestle with it and not be afraid of asking some hard, difficult questions. Sound good? What is the new birth? How do we enter the kingdom of God? How do I become a Christian? What is the normal Christian birth? What does it mean to have salvation in Christ? So just a couple other thoughts before we begin to read here. Um, Jesus came to save us. Okay, we know that. Save us from what? Well, the first two letters of Jesus, J-E, it's, it's Jehovah um, or God or Yahweh um, in Hebrew. It means uh, save us, salvation. Um, and the last two letters, S-U-S, means actually save us. So, so Jesus came to save us. We know that biblically, Genesis to Revelation. So the question then is, what, what did he come to save us from? Well, I think simply he came to save us from our sin, our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. You mean those of us who are in Christ are going to keep sinning? Until, we're going to unpack all this, but until you are fully um, redeemed, renewed, saved, and enter into glory or heaven or paradise with him, there's still going to be a sin principle alive and at work in your body. Oh, man. You mean I'm going to wrestle with this the rest of your life? I do. Sorry if you hope for some better news. So he came to save us from our sin. He came to save us from eternal darkness or hell. When Jesus talked about hell, he mentions this place called Gehenna 11 times in the New Testament or the Valley of Hinnon. Um, but in, the, in Jerusalem, in his day and age, did they have a sewer system? No. Did they have a trash service? No. So what would people do? Well, they'd walk outside a gate in Jerusalem, and the gate was called the Dung Gate. Okay, I'm not trying to be gross, but I'm telling you the way it was. And they would carry their sewage out to uh, this place called the Valley of Gehenna, and they would actually dump it down. So uh, animal uh, carcasses, refuse, things that are rotting, uh, all of their sewage, all this stuff is dumped down into this place. And so when Jesus talks about hell or eternal darkness or separation from a deep relationship with God, he, that's what he references. Um, he calls it this place uh, referenced uh, as Gehenna. So he comes to save us from our sin. He comes to save us from eternal darkness. He comes to save us from relationlessness, if you will. He comes to save us into relationship with him and people. And he comes to bring us into the kingdom of God. But I think one of the things that, that gets lost in this is that transformation in Jesus takes time. You know what I'm saying? Like we have this idea, and we're going to unpack this a little more, but in this sort of Western idea of Christianity, that I'm going to pray this sinner's prayer, and all of a sudden, poof, everything's great. Well, some things are great, but there is a serious journey. It's why you always hear me talking about like a Jesus journey or the process. Or early on, the church in the New Testament was called the Church of the Way. You know, they're on the way. They're on the journey. They're in the process. They're progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with the person of Jesus. So if I got real like theological on you, I would say that salvation is made up of three um, Latin uh, words from the Latin Vulgate translation, justification, um, sanctification, 
justification and glorification. So let me just give you quickly what those means. Justification, I am set free from the penalty of sin. So when Michael prayed that prayer at age four, was I justified? Yeah, absolutely. However, at Michael, when I prayed that prayer at age four, was I fully sanctified, set free from the power of sin in my life? No. Get that, it's important. Uh, was Michael at age four fully glorified, set free from the eternal presence of sin inside of me? No, and Michael is not gonna be fully glorified until this body dies, and it will, and I'll pass into glory with Jesus, and I'll have a new body, right? And I will be fully glorified at that point, and then I will experience the fullness of um, being justified, being sanctified, and being glorified, or being, as we call it, Saved. So when was Michael saved? Was he saved at four? Yeah. He got lost for seven years in a really dark and ugly way. Did he lose his salvation? No. But then he came back to Jesus. But would anybody have been able to look at Michael's life during those seven years and said, oh, Michael's a Jesus believer? No. But I came back... And then I've been through in a whole other process of counseling and healing and going back and asking people's forgiveness and restoration. And this was back in 2008 when, I, when the Lord brought me home to him and home to my family. So was I saved then? Here's the answer that I'm beginning to wrestle out with you is saved um, in the Bible is actually a verb. And if we looked at the New Testament verb, which we're not going to take the time to do today, but it has three tenses, a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. So I'll, you'll hear me say this both in conjunction with being saved and also in conjunction with being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Was Michael saved? Yes. Is Michael being saved? Yes. Will Michael continue to be saved? Yes, so lest you put me on some pedestal or some stage in a middle school somewhere and think that I am something special, I am simply in my own Jesus journey as are you. So the, the, the welcome place here is actually to get in this spot where you go, okay, I am not going to be perfect. The pastor's not perfect. My spouse isn't perfect. My life isn't perfect. But I am progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with Jesus, justified, sanctified, ultimately glorified. Um, and I am beginning to experience him more fully and fully responding with greater character and fruit of the Spirit to all the uh, situations that arise in my life. Because Jesus will save you from all your problems. I work to make you think. Many people, um, especially in our American version of, of Christianity, and I love America, I love our country, I love the church here, but, but we also have to acknowledge that many people here sort of draw this vertical line, and it's like pre-salvation and then salvation. And if we're not careful, um, it's almost, maybe go here with me a second, it's the downside of living in, in what we would call an industrialized nation. So we're specialized, right? There's these definite sort of points in time, and everything is sort of simplified down, and we all have a certain task. And what an amazing gift. I love our country. I love this nation. I love just that God has blessed us. It is amazing. But the risk is that we sort of create um, the industrialization, if you will, of Christianity. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, think with me about the creation of the Model T little car. Who remembers who uh, created that, invented that? Henry Ford, that's right. And how did Henry Ford created a system by which he created the car? Anybody remember that? The assembly line. Okay, so here's the risk, is that we simplify Christianity down to just getting people to raise a hand and just pray a prayer, um, and then we suddenly call that the sum total of all of Christianity. Is the sinner's prayer in itself wrong? No, there has to be an entrance point. What my dear mom, she's probably sitting in here somewhere, but what she led me through as a four-year-old, was she accurate and right in what she led me through? Yes, I was four, and I was recognizing my own internal sin. I couldn't have used that word then, but my need for Jesus to, to rescue and save me. But I had no idea what I was committing to. And by the time I would tell you as a 10 or 12 or 15-year-old, I thought that by the time I would be a 42-year-old man and a pastor, I would have it all together. I'd be totally perfect. All sin would be like fully excommunicated from myself, and I would be a resurrected man. And I have discovered. I have discovered that the journey of the Christian life is just that. It's a journey. It's a process. So the first thing that I want you to do as we embark upon this is breathe really deep. 
And I want you to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus for where you are in the process. It's okay to be imperfect, grumpy, angry, frustrated, irritable, nasty to your spouse. You need to repent of it. And you probably need to say, spouse, will you forgive me? But it's okay to live in that place. In 1952, a guy named uh, Bill Bright with a wonderful organization, Love Bill and Bonnet Bright, he's, he's no longer alive, um, but they penned uh, something called the Four Spiritual Laws. It's kind of like the Henry Ford industrialized version of Christianity. And it's really powerful. I agree with all four of the spiritual laws. In fact, there's probably, if I said, in fact, who came to Christ because of the Four Spiritual Laws? One, two, a few. It's super powerful. It's, it is accurate. It is a great little message. But the risk is that we as a church say that that's the end all be all. When in fact that is just the first step of a thousand mile journey. It is just the first step when you pray that prayer. It is just the first step of discipleship, of knowing God, of abiding in his presence, of being known by him, and then of living out the kingdom of God, progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with his person and presence. Does that make sense? Okay, y'all are looking at me like, maybe I'm preaching better than y'all are responding. I need to get y'all fired up today. Okay, so <clears throat> before we start reading, let me say just one more thing. Um, there was this thing that came to Wilmington. I grew up in Wilmington here. I wasn't born here, but I grew up here. And there was a thing called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames that came to Wilmington in 1997. I was a freshman in high school, I think, at Hoggard High School, just right over here. And it, it, somehow they got a ton of young people to go. And at the end of it, they have a ton of young people that came up and prayed the sinner's prayer. And here's the risk is I saw the, all those people walk out and most of them had not a care in the world for who Jesus was, for who God was. They were just up there to purchase a little bit of fire insurance and make sure that they weren't going to go to Gehenna, which is what Jesus would have said. And not that that is wrong, but if we boil down and make the sum total of the entire Christian experience that one prayer, then we're missing what Jesus came to do. If Jesus wanted it to be that simple, he would have said, here are the three steps, or here are the four steps, or this is the path and this is it. But instead, he obscured it a little bit. And you go, okay, then how do I know and relate to this holy God? And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, who's read The Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody? Look at that. That is a great book. And here's why I love that book. The book, um, actually, relatively early on in the book, I can't remember exactly where, but this guy named Christian comes to the cross and he takes off his big weight of sin. Um, but there's this huge part of the book that's thereafter that he has to go through. And all of it is his journey of being, come on. Saved. That's right. It's, it's the journey of salvation. So it transitions your understanding of what's going to happen the moment you pray that sinner's prayer. The moment you give your heart and life to Jesus. And what's interesting is at the very end, I'm going to quote um, this main character, Christian. So John Bunyan was the author. The main character in the book was a guy named Christian. That's funny, right? Christian. He did that on purpose. Um, but, but he said, this is what Christian said. And I saw that there was a way to hell, even at the gates of heaven. I'm not going to unpack that theologically, but what I want to fully what I want you to see here is the goal of the Christian life is not just to get you to raise your hand or to come forward or to pray a simple prayer. The goal of the Christian life is you would begin an abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus, knowing him more deeply and intimately, walking with him daily, learning to hear his voice, learning to respond to his conviction, repenting, being changed, being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ Jesus. This is the normal Christian life. So let's read. Acts chapter 10, scroll, flip, whatever you're doing. I'm going to start in verse 23. I'm going to try to read this um, more quickly than I usually would. And we're going to talk about the four steps to the normal Christian life. Verse 23 of, of Acts uh, 10. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Okay. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. It's like a 23-mile journey or something. Um, the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful little seaside village, clear water, white sand beaches. Amazing. Cornelius, 
who was a uh, Roman um, commander in the army, was expecting them. And he called together his relatives and his close friends. Verse 25, as Peter entered the house, so Peter um, and, and the attendants and, and servants of Cornelius are with Peter. They're entering into the house. And let me remind you, um, no Jew, Orthodox Jew, would enter into the house of a Gentile. So Peter comes in, and let's see what uh, Cornelius says. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. I love this. Verse 26. But Peter made him get up and said, stand up. I am only a human myself. There's another sermon right here, and it has to do with whether you're choosing to be a servant or you're choosing to be a celebrity in your Christian journey. We'll unpack that another time. Verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, now why is there a large gathering of people? Because Cornelius has brought them all together and said, we got to hear what this guy Peter said because an angel showed up to me and he told me to listen to Peter. So Peter's going to come and tell us how to be saved. Okay, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or to visit them. I dealt with this, the prejudice of Peter and the pride of Peter two weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it on our podcast or on our um, uh, YouTube. Thank you. (laughs) But God has shown uh, me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So then Peter's like, okay, I've come. I'm breaking the Jewish uh, rabbinic sort of laws of being in this guy's house. Uh, Now, why did you send for me? So the whole crowd probably got quiet. They're all listening. What in the world is Cornelius going to say? Verse 30, Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. Who's this? An angel. Angels are real, as are demons. You see them throughout Scripture. Verse 31. And the angel said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Now, at this point, is Cornelius saved? No. But I do want to point out, he has a fear of God. In other words, he's giving his gifts to the poor. He's probably attending a Jewish synagogue. He's, um, he's praying. So he has, a, he has a growing sort of fear of God, which is all but lost on our modern Christian society, I would say. Verse 32, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest at the home of Simon the Tanner. Two different Simons there, um, who lives by the sea. This is Cornelius speaking. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God. Isn't it interesting? He, is he saved at this point? No. But is he moving towards salvation? Yes. So is he in the Jesus journey? Yes. But we, all, a lot of us Christians, might look at him and turn our noses up and go, well, you're not saved. Come on. We've all done that. And you're lying if you say you haven't. <laughs> Now, we're here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Oh, the church is gathered like that every week. Some of you will get that later. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. So what's he saying there? There's no favoritism between uh, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female. That's the whole theology that's beginning to unfurl here. Verse 35. But accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That means the, the family of God is represented by every nation. Verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing, so this is Peter speaking, you know the message um, that God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Now this for the first time Peter is using not just Jewish Messiah but like Savior of the whole world language. Verse 37, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. And how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Uh, Next week, I think we're going to unpack this, verse 38. What is anointing? What is that? How do we get it? Can we lose it? What does that mean? So stay tuned. If you want to know about anointing, that's what we're doing next week. Verse 39. We, uh, so Peter's still talking, are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. 
Verse 41, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God already chosen, uh, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter's saying, I got to see Jesus after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. How do you receive forgiveness of sin? Through his name. Verse 44. Now this is cool. God interrupts Peter's sermon. I like this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. How dare you interrupt me, God? Verse 45, the circumcised believers uh, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. So here it is, it's happening. The church is becoming universal right at this moment. For they had heard him speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Father, I pray that you would help us unpack this. What is the normal Christian life? What does it mean to give our life to you? What does it mean to be in a Jesus journey? And Father, would you allow us to make inroads into our own life and our own experience in the name of Jesus? Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to work through today. If there are four steps to this relationship with Jesus, and I'm pulling back a little bit from Cornelius, although I'm using this as a roadmap, but I'm using Acts 1 through 10 all the way through Acts 16, going, what do all the believers experience? What is a normal Christian sort of pattern? Um, and then how do we know that we're sort of in the way? So here's what we're going to talk about. Number one, a person repents. That's become like a bad word in church world. Like people used it in an ugly way to like beat people over the head and make them perform and don't smoke and don't dance and don't chew and all the stuff, right? That is not what repentance is. We're going to talk about that. But a person um, repents, number one. Second thing that I see again and again and again is a person believes in the Lord Jesus and exchanges their life uh, for his. Third thing, a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing, a person is baptized in water. I'll say those again, and then we're going to go through them. Number one, a person repents. Number two, a person believes in the Lord Jesus and exchanges the brokenness of their life for the life of Christ. Number three, a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. And number four, a person is baptized in water. And if I added like a 4.5, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to make this the fifth. So I, I called it the four. But if I added a 4.5 or a fifth point, it'd be a person joins with other believers in a community of faith to walk out worshiping God and, and being in relationship with him. Because we just read it. What did Peter do? He hung around with them to do what? Preach Jesus, help them understand the gospel, help them walk in the fullness of the spirit. So, okay, let's go back. A person repents. Now, what you see with Cornelius, and we can make it bigger than Cornelius, I could go through Genesis to Revelation, I could even use all the great preachers and leaders that we've ever known and tell, use their faith story here, but a person begins to fear God and recognizes their own sinfulness. In other words, they see their need for repentance, and suddenly they're aware of their own sin, their own shortcoming, um, their own lack of holiness. So, let's ask this question. Cornelius has piety, which means what? He's religious, he's like, God is mess in order, right? So he has piety and he has morality, but he does not have salvation, right? So if anybody could earn their way to God at this point, would Cornelius? Maybe, but he has piety, he has morality, he has religion, but he does not have salvation. So God sends an angel to him and says, hey, send for Peter, because Peter's gonna give you the gift of Salvation, the gift of Jesus, the gift of the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. So let's do this. Let's say what repentance is not, two things, and then let's say what it is. Um, repentance is not regret. I would sort of define regret as looking back at your life and feeling sorry over your wrong decisions and the impact those wrong decisions have had on you. That's regret. That's not repentance. Follow? Okay. Repentance is not remorse. Okay. I would define remorse as the feeling of, of um, it's the negative feeling, becoming aware of how your actions have impacted other people. 
That's remorse, but that's not repentance. So it's when you hurt someone else or there's things in Michael's past that I have done um, that have impacted Abby, impacted our kids. And I, I experience ongoing at points remorse. And sometimes that remorse turns into repentance. And I got to go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? But remorse by itself is not repentance. Follow? Okay, so what is repentance? Repentance is always about what you've done to God, okay? So if you want to just cross-reference a verse, Psalm 51, verse 4. This is King David when he sinned with Bathsheba. But he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. So what's repentance? It's acknowledging what we've done against God and actually saying, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? It's turning away from uh, the, our, our sin. Luke 15, 21, another cross-reference. This is uh, the prodigal son, which I have a prodigal son story. But the prodigal son uh, came home. He's standing. The father runs out to meet him. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he's acknowledging that sin is first and primarily against God. So he, here's one of the huge breakdowns, I think, in the, in, in the current American version of Christianity is we don't want to tell people they have to repent of their sin. Here's the problem. You don't get to do you. You don't get to self-define. You don't get to say who you are and what you want to do and when you want to do it. No, no, no. There's a holy God, and he has created you with a free will. And if you choose to self-define and do you and do your own thing and go your own way, he will let you because he is a loving God, and he will honor your will. And ultimately, you will land yourself in a place of eternal darkness called Gehenna. That's the reality. But if you want to live a life that is fulfilled, that is reconciled, excuse me, to the king of glory, that is reconciled to God Almighty and to have a life full of purpose and the fruit of the spirit and joy and hope and peace and faith, then you absolutely um, must come to him and begin to repent over your sin. Now, I, I wanna, I'm going to kick a little bucket uh, this morning because I think it needs to be kicked is, and I'll, I'll touch on this at different points, is the sin uh, of pride in the human heart more or less evil than the sin of committing an abortion? Oh, gosh, did the pastor just say this? Yes, I did. There is no hierarchy of sin. In other words, anything that falls short of the standard of a holy God is sin and must be repented of before him. So we come to him and we make this repentance. So Michael, age four, did Michael repent? Yes. Did Michael get lost for seven years? Yes. When I came out of it, did I repent again? Yes. Michael's 42 years old and I've been married to Abby and we have two kids and we have this wonderful life and marriage. Do I continue to repent? Yes, because I'm continuing to be saved and I'm continuing to be filled. It is the journey. So it's not like, hey, I come to Christ, I give my life to Christ, um, I believe in him, I accept Christ, whatever it is, I raise my hand, I come forward, I pray the prayer, and then everything's perfect, and you know, we all live happily ever after, amen and amen. It's not the way it works. Okay, so we have this dangerous notion that we can sort of judge other people's external sin, whatever their sin of choice is, and we can hide our internal heart sin and go, oh, but my sin's not that bad. Jesus frequently said and reserved his most harsh criticism actually for the people who were hiding these secret heart sins and not for the people who had these more egregious external sins. You hear me? I mean, this is, this is powerful and it's important. So I would advocate to you, if you want an ongoing life-filled relationship with Jesus and with other humans, if you want to be in community and relationship, get used to and become really good at repenting. It accesses the kingdom of God. Abby and I get in fusses. Do you believe that? We fuss. We call them kerfuffles or fusses or whatever. We joke about it, but... And the faster we both call time out and go, Lord Jesus, it's not about me being right or her being right. And then we got to go, would you forgive me for where I was unkind or where I said this? And, and what are we doing in that moment? Number one, we're getting right with God. We're repenting before him. Number two, we're asking and we're receiving his forgiveness, which is this amazing exchange. The only faith on planet earth where you can do this supernatural exchange where you repent of your sin and God grants you forgiveness. You don't do anything to earn it. You just ask and he 
forgives. And then you look at one another and you ask each other to forgive. Will you forgive me? And all of a sudden, the kingdom of God is infused not only into Michael's person, but into Abby's person, into our marriage. And guess what overflows onto our kids? The kingdom of God. The joy of the Lord. The love of the Lord. The hope of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. And we are training even them not to be little Pharisees and be perfect. No, no, no. We are actually training them to abide in the presence of Jesus, acknowledging their own shortcomings. And just, go, well, you know, would you forgive me, Lord? And would you forgive me? sibling or parent or whatever. That's the process. That's part of the normal Christian life. So repentance is always about what you've done to God. And I'm not going to unpack this too much more, but I would say that there's repentance in thought, there's repentance um, in words, what you've said, and there's repentance in deeds. And repentance opens the door supernaturally to forgiveness, which is unbelievable. There's nothing like it in any uh, faith anywhere on planet earth. It is like amazing. And you can access the forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's amazing. And you can exchange then your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you. Okay. So number one, what do we see all Christians looking at the book of Acts, looking at the epistles, what do all Christians go through? They repent. And they, and they don't just repent once, but they repent. I love that you have Simon, or not uh, Simon, but Cornelius here. And Cornelius has become a God-fearer. He has recognized that he has fallen and he is sinful. And at first he's attempting to amend his fallenness and sinfulness by giving money away, by praying, by going to synagogue. And God graciously sends an angel to him and says, no, 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 that's not going to cut it, man. Morality and piety and religiousness don't save you, but I'm going to tell you, what does? Okay. Number two. Mm, let me say this. Uh, most of us use wrong standards to measure our thoughts, words, and deeds. In other words, stop comparing yourself to other people and start comparing yourself to Jesus. Stop comparing yourself. I mean, it's worthless. A gentleman came to see me several years ago and he said, I'm angry at my spouse and I'm a good husband and I listened to him for a while and I was like, okay. Um, have you, and I said, have you practiced giving yourself, your life, your will, your choices, your preferences up to her daily? Giving yourself, this is the Ephesians uh, passage, by the way. Giving yourself, laying down your life for her daily as Christ laid down his life for you. He said, no. I said, why not? That's the biblical mandate. I can we went there to Ephesians. And I said, this is what it says. Love, love your spouse like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave it all. All of his preferences, all of his life, all of his breath. He laid it all down. Okay, so then how are you supposed to love your spouse? Lay it all down. I said, go back and try that for a little while and see what changes. Don't demand obedience and respect. No, 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 no. Jesus is the son of God, God himself incarnate. And it says he came not to uh, be served, but to serve. I mean, it's this cataclysmic upside down. What? Okay, so <clears throat> number one, a, a person is called um, to repent and that opens up the door to God forgiving us. Normal Christian life. Number two, a person believes and exchanges their life um, for faith. Uh, in Christ. And this is, uh, there's, this is a little cumbersome, but I think I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I, I see five components to faith. So a person, number one, a person repents. Number two, a person believes and then exchanges their life for the life of Christ and appropriates the gift of faith into their heart. Now, five components of faith. Number one, there's a historical component. In other words, if this Bible doesn't hold water, if I can't go and, and, and uh, look through the evidence of the resurrection and the life of Christ, then it's not worth giving my life to this Jesus. This is not a religion. I have stood in Israel. I have done the research. I have I've, uh, put my hands in the very dirt. There is eyewitness testimony, circumstantial evidence, and eyewitness testimony that this Jesus is real. And I would actually say that if any human alive on planet Earth would be willing to do the actual research, biblical research, historical research, and archaeological research about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, that they would come away with one conclusion. Jesus is Lord. And they'd give their life to him. There is no way. But most of us don't want Jesus to be Lord because guess the what? That means I'm not. That's the deal. 
So people don't want to know. But I'm telling you, if we put Jesus, the life of Jesus, on trial in any courtroom and we walk through, was Jesus born of a virgin? Uh, did Jesus live in Nazareth? Um, did Jesus uh, die in Jerusalem? Was Jesus put in a tomb in Jerusalem? Was Jesus uh, resurrected in Jerusalem? And did Jesus ascend into heaven? If you put Jesus on trial like that and you had a, a jury and you actually went through the entire thing, you presented all of the evidence and they used um, circumstantial evidence and they used eyewitness testimony, they would come away with one response and one response only. Jesus is king and Jesus is alive and Jesus did die on that cross and he did go into the tomb and he did break the bounds of death and hell. He did rise from the dead and he did ultimately ascend back to heaven, the father, and he lives there with him waiting for us to finish our Jesus journey so that we can be completely justified, sanctified and glorified and spend eternity with him in the new heaven and new earth. That's good news. I got a friend I'm sharing with right now, and I gave him um, Lee Strobel's uh, book, Case for Christ. It's really good. But he, he just goes through the facts. Lee Strobel was a cool guy. He was a, um, he's still alive. But he was an, an investigative journalist um, and super critical of Christians and anyone who would follow Jesus, like what losers, right? And he got in there, and he investigated himself. He did the research. He went to the Holy Land, and guess what he decided? Jesus is Lord. And I bow my knee. If, you, if anyone will examine the evidence, you will find and you will come to the place where you choose to believe. So a person believes five components of belief or faith. There's a historical component. There's a personal element. Um, how do I even explain the personal element of faith or the personal element of believing? Um, how many of you today believe Michael exists? Oh, good, good, that's great. Okay, how many of you believe in Michael? I'm glad not, you're not raising your hands. Okay, so here's, here's, what, I, here's what I mean. Um, Confucius is dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Jesus is alive. You can't just believe in Jesus, but you actually have to, um, you know, you can't just believe Jesus exists. Everyone out there on the street will go, you know, do you believe Jesus existed? And they would say, probably, yeah, but you actually have to believe in him. Um, so let me open this up. James uh, 2.19, if you want to cross-reference that, but says, you believe that there is one God. That's good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So is believing that a person exists enough? Go back to my question. Do you believe Michael exists? Yes. Do you believe in Michael? And I would say, what, what is an evidence that you would believe in Michael? Give me everything you own. Give me your house. Give me your bank accounts. Give me your car keys. Give me your, just give me everything and we'll see how much you believe in me. <laughs> Who's going to do that? Nobody. Now, what does Jesus call us to do? You can't just believe Jesus exists. Even the demons believe that. Even non-believers believe that. He's a historical figure. We all know that. Okay, but you actually believe in. It means surrender to, give your life to, lay down your, your existence and everything. And you actually do. We are biblically even called to give him our cars, our house, our spouse, our family, our life, our finances. We are called to give him everything. And if you tell me how much you have given him, I will tell you how much of Jesus you're currently experiencing. So there's a historical component of faith. There's a personal element of faith. There's a verbal element of faith. What do I mean by that? You got to confess with your mouth. You, you, what I do love about the sinner's prayer, what I do love about coming forward is you are declaring in front of everybody, I am giving my life to Jesus. Here I am. Why do we do baptism? Because it's a public declaration. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it's a public declaration that I've given my life to Christ and I'm exchanging my brokenness for the life of Christ in me and through me. So you got a historical component of faith. you got a personal element of faith or belief. You have a um, verbal element of faith, Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you want to cross-reference um, that. And <clears throat> there's a practical element of faith. In other words, if you haven't taken a step believing in Jesus, trusting in him, your faith may not be alive yet. 
But what do I mean by that? There's people that get in this argument and they, theologians, and they go, well, uh, Paul says faith is just, you know, of the heart. And James says faith is of works because James says faith without works is dead. But James is actually not saying, um, in my opinion, um, you you don't have James who is saying uh, works in other religious performance, like working for salvation or working for God's pleasure. He is talking about religious acts of faith, deep um, like I am going to give financially out of faith. I'm going to go pray for someone out of faith. I'm going to go share Jesus with someone out of faith. And if you aren't doing those things, at some point you have to go, has my faith been fully made alive in Christ? You've got to ask that question. Now, are you, can you be in a journey towards Jesus like Cornelius? Yes. And let us be a church that is so gracious because people are at different places in their faith journey. Okay. So you have a historical component of belief, uh, a personal element of faith and belief, a verbal, um, a practical, and then the last thing is just a continual. I've been saved, I'm being saved, I will continue to be saved. All right, back to my, my, back to my big thing. Um, number one, a person repents. Number two, a person believes and exchanges their life for faith in Christ. Um, they believe in Christ Jesus. And we talked about the five elements of belief. Uh, Number three, a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I look at Acts 1 through the whole book of Acts, I see several things. Uh, There are times when people give their life to Jesus and they they, um, pray some sort of prayer, they're saved, and simultaneously they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But more often, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a second work and an ongoing work. That means, in other words, at some point you have to come to the spot where you go, Lord Jesus, would you fill me with your spirit? And you pray it by faith, just like you pray a prayer by faith. Lord, would you forgive me for my sin? And would you come and live inside of me, abiding within me? It's the same thing. But we as believers have to be filled with the spirit. Go back to um, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Were they filled with the spirit? Yeah. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. And then, um, well, I'll keep reading that in just a minute. Uh, A person is filled with the Spirit. So, are you filled with the Spirit once? Yes. Are you going to be filled with the Spirit again? Yes. Are you continually filled if you're willing? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, There are people who would say that if you don't speak in tongues when you're filled with the Spirit, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not really filled with the Spirit. Biblically, that's inaccurate. It's inaccurate. If you look at every time someone is filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, it's about a 50-50 situation. Half the time people speak in tongues. Half the time people don't. Make a law out of that. When you figure it out, let me know, okay? (laughs) Just is what it is. But I would say this. This is the normal Christian life, repenting, um, believing and appropriating faith, um, being filled, uh, number three, with the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, it's being baptized in water. Why? What is, what is even baptism? It, baptism is this external, beautiful symbol of being plunged into death under the waves and then being resurrected to life. Can baptism be done by, you know, pouring a pitcher or a jug over someone's head? Yes. Can baptism be done with a sprinkling? Yeah, I think the Lord honors many things. We here, we would do child dedications, and then we would encourage people once they have given their life and and have walked into some measure of adulthood and understand their faith, that's when they choose to be baptized. Because baptism is the symbol of being crucified with Christ Jesus underneath the waves, and then breaking through the bounds of death and hell and being resurrected to life in Christ. The old person is washed away. The new person that God has created is now here. So it's an external sign of a new internal reality. Baptism is something that Jesus commanded, Matthew 28, um, the the great commandment, go and make disciples, baptizing them. So you go, well, I don't want to be baptized. Well, do you want to be in Jesus? Well, he commanded it. Did he command us to repent? Yes. Did he command us to believe and appropriate faith? Yes. He commanded us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he commanded us to be baptized. You go, well, Michael, I've never been baptized. 
well, we'll do another baptism service and you can be baptized. It's good news, right? Now, if we got into the nitty gritty, if someone came up here and prayed and gave their life to Jesus sincerely and went out and got in a car accident and died and they were never baptized, would they be in eternity with Jesus? Yes. Let's not make this weird and religious. Yes. But if you are walking with him over time, these are the four things that show up again and again and again. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be. Okay. Lastly, and I see it here at the very end. Um, let's just read the last two verses, 47. Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. That's the, that last they stayed with Peter, or Peter, they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. That's where a person joins with other believers in a community of faith, walking out their faith, worshiping together, um, serving God together with other believers. That's my 4.5. <laughs> um, so you might ask me, well, Michael, can, a, um, can I be a believer but not an attender? Like, I don't like church. Can I be a believer but not an attender? I'd say, yeah, for a while. But at some point, if you're not working out and walking out your life and salvation with a group of other people, you've got to ask, has this really taken root and is it deep and genuine? You've got to be in a faith community. So let's just tie this together like this. What are the, what are the four or five, 4.5 things that we see from the book of Acts that are consistent um, steps to ongoing relationship with Jesus? A person repents. A person believes and exchanges their brokenness for faith in Christ, number two. A person is filled with the Holy Spirit, number three. A person is baptized with water, number four. And a, a person joins in a community of ongoing faith, number five. That's it. As you go today, may you sense the presence of the living and risen King Jesus over your life, in your life. As you go today, may you sense the warmth of his gaze upon you. As you go today, may your ears be inclined to his voice. As you go today, may your eyes be acquainted with the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And as you go today, may you have the tenderness and humility of heart to prefer him and one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.